you would, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. If you're without a copy of God's Word today, please use the Bibles that are in the pew shelf in front of you. Our sermon text is on page 888. There's no shame in using a pew Bible. Right? We want everyone benefiting from reading God's Word. We know this book to be God's Word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, and its power to convert sinners and to edify saints. And we want everyone reading it for themselves to know and understand God. So John 3.16, once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Hear the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these verses are probably among the more familiar verses to us in the Bible, and therefore we risk passing over them too quickly with little thought or attention given. I pray that would not be the case for us this morning, or any morning for that matter, but that your Spirit would awaken our dull hearts to the extravagance of your love for us. Lead us away from false ideas about your love. Protect us from refusing your love. Clarify us. Clarify for us the work of your love in Jesus Christ. And make your love for us a shield in coming days against fear and depression and temptations to sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, John 3.16 is, uh, is likely among the more familiar verses to you all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We often see this verse printed, on, printed everywhere from billboards to the bottom of my soft drink cup at In-N-Out Burger last Friday. It has become a popular text used by the Lord in saving many people over the centuries through 
evangelistic crusades and evangelism tracts. It's also, it's also among the first uh, scripture verses, our children, or maybe a new disciple, often memorize. And what a fitting verse to begin grasping the heart of the Christian faith. God loves perishing sinners by sending his son into the world to rescue them. But where we often go astray with familiar verses like John 3.16 is when we make them more of a cliché than a treasured truth for the happiness of our souls. If we're not careful, familiarity with a Bible verse, which is meant to work for our good, can often work against us such that what's really extraordinary just becomes ordinary. When God loves us, John 16 says so. I know that. Or maybe you've really grown to value John 3.16, but quite apart from the rest of John's gospel. That makes the most sense of it. Your expertise in quoting John 3.16 has left you feeling like you've arrived at knowing God's love. When the turn of every page of John's gospel opens us to, opens us to new depths of his love. By treasuring one verse in his gospel without the whole, we rob ourselves of how amazing the truth of John 3.16 really is. Or maybe your familiarity with John 3.16 is of an altogether different sort. You're in the camp who've rightly raised criticisms over the ways others have abused texts, like John 3.16. But over time, you've grown so skeptical of anyone quoting that passage that you can't even enjoy its truth when you hear it. Your relentless skepticism has you so consumed with answering familiar objections that you can't even savor the sweetness of God's love anymore. All you can talk about is what John 3.16 is not saying instead of rejoicing over what it is saying. God so loved you, you perishing sinner. That he gave his only son to bring you eternal life. Or maybe you're not a Christian at all. And you just hear Christians quoting it all the time to you downtown. But have never stopped to consider how it relates to you. You just roll your eyes and keep on walking. Not knowing that by doing so, you continue down a path in life. That will end in utter destruction. And all the while, God's been holding out to you a Savior from that destruction. So let's not allow familiarity to be a stumbling block for us this morning. Rather, let's allow familiarity to serve our amazement over the greatness of God's love revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, the Son who reveals God to us. He reveals God to us in coming from heaven to earth. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And part of what Jesus reveals to us about God is is that His mission as a Son, His coming, His work, His cross, His resurrection, everything about His mission is grounded... In the love of God. His mission 
reveals that God loves sinners. In our passage, Jesus has just finished teaching Nicodemus about our desperate need for a new heart and new eyes and new life. And Jesus made it abundantly clear for Nicodemus that a new heart and new eyes and new life come only through his death on the cross. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that is, lifted up to die, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then we come to verse 16 and see that all of that work, new heart by the Spirit, new eyes from the Son of Man, new life through Jesus' death, all of it finds its beginning in God's love for the world. So don't pass over the four there. He's linking it back to the work of Christ in verses 14 and 15. All of his work is grounded in the love of God for the world. So what I want to do this morning is I want to uphold for you the greatness of the love of God, and we're just going to turn it five different times to see and enjoy and experience it more deeply. And just by way of clarification, I imagine a few of you are already skeptical of the way I'm talking about the greatness of God's love. You think I've already blown this sermon because... You know the Greek word behind our English word so in verse 16. In English, we use the word so to convey either the manner in which something is done, God loved the world like so, or we can use so in English to express the degree in which something is done. God so loved the world. The Greek can be translated either way. But let me just pose a question. Does translating the verse to express the manner in which God loved the world somehow leave us questioning the degree of his love for us? Not one bit. In fact, it's in understanding how God loved us that we gain greater clarity about the degree to which he loved us. John 3.16 does show us how God loved the world. He loved the world like so. He gave his only son. But how he loved the world involved both action and passion for our good. It involved both expression from God and sending his son and zeal that it will achieve our benefit. It involved both demonstration and affection for our well-being. So yes, it's important that we clarify what we mean by our language. But what we're about to see is that how God loved the world shows us, really does show us, the greatness of his love for the world. And so we're going to turn that love now in five ways with that in mind. First... We see the greatness of God's love revealed in the fact that God loved a a rebellious world at all. 
we see the greatness of God's love revealed in the fact that God loved a rebellious world at all. One of the most revolting ways to read John 3.16 is by making ourselves and our unworth the basis for God loving the world. We'd like to think that God loves us because he sees something in us that is so glorious and precious to him that he just must have it. We live under the notion that not to love me is for God to be missing out on something special. But John paints an entirely different picture of the world in which, God, in which makes God's love shine all the more brightly. As D.A. Carson puts it in his commentary on John, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. Look at the way John speaks of the world in his gospel. And keep in mind that he has the world of humanity in mind. Every human being, all people born in Adam. In chapter 1, verse 5, he refers to the world figuratively as the darkness. In contrast to Jesus' light. The world is darkness. In chapter 1, verse 10, John says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world is so bent on itself and its people didn't even recognize their maker. That, their, that, the, that its people didn't even recognize their maker. In chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? That presupposes that the world is sinful. It has to have its sins taken away. The world is sinful before God. We've rebelled against His ways. In chapter 3, the where we're at, verse 17, John implies that the world needs to be saved. It needs to be saved from God's judgment. Then in verse 19 in chapter 3, the light of Christ comes into the world and it says that the people in that world loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The moral plot problem with the world is that it hates the light of Jesus Christ. And they prefer, the world prefers darkness. In fact, chapter 7 and verse 7 says explicitly that the world in its natural state hates Jesus. It hates him. Then in chapter 12, verse 31, we find out that the world is also that realm of people ruled by the devil, like just Dusty prayed earlier. It's ruled by the devil himself. I doubt the majority of people reading a John 3.16 bumper sticker view the world that way and see themselves as part of that rebellious world if they're still outside of Christ. Most of the world thinks they deserve to be loved by God. 
when this passage teaches us that there's nothing lovely about us that would move God to love. And yet what should amaze us is that God freely decided to love us. Yes, we might say God is love. 1 John 4, 8 and 16 tell us. God is love. But that doesn't mean that He's obligated to love us. Love is part of God's very nature. But He isn't dependent on the world in order to be a loving God. John 17 says that He loves His Son quite apart from the world. So He doesn't need to love us in order to be a loving God. And that's even more so the case when our rebellion doesn't deserve God's love, but God's condemnation, verse 18 says. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already. Already He is condemned for His rebellion against God. Already the wrath of God remains on the world. Already the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God did not love a neutral world. He loved a rebellious world, deserving of condemnation under His holy anger and eternal wrath because of sin. Knowing this rebellious state of the world is what leads the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 to speak of God's love as a great love. A great love. When he reflects on his own deliverance from the world in Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. Because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. The fact that God loved a rebellious world at all should leave us saying with Paul, what a great love this is. What a great love for me. I deserve nothing but wrath, and yet he has set his affection upon me. God loved us not because we're so great, not because he perceived something good in us, not because we merited it in any way, but simply because he loved us. Second, we see the greatness of God's love revealed in the worth of the gift of His Son. We see the greatness of God's love revealed in the worth of the gift of His Son. God loved a rebellious world. And verse 16 tells us that the result of that love was that He gave His only Son. So God not only freely set his affection upon a rebellious world of people, 
His affection also led him to act for their well-being by giving up his only son. Some of the older translations say that God gave his only begotten son. Now that's true in one theological sense. Jesus is the eternal Jesus as the eternal son is eternally is the eternally begotten one. He's not made. But that's not what John means here. Rather, he simply means to distinguish Jesus as the unique, one-of-a-kind Son. In other words, Jesus is the Son of all sons. There's no other Son in the universe like this Son. According to chapter 1, this Son has enjoyed eternal fellowship with God the Father. He was in the beginning with God, and He Himself was God. He shared an eternal glory and love with His Father before the world He created ever even existed. He is the only glorious Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as such a Son, He reveals God perfectly and is worthy of all of our worship. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the the word of His power, both invisible and visible universe. That means there's no divine gift superior to the gift of God's divine Son. There's no one person of higher value. There's no one superior in power. There's no one more treasured by God. There's no one who preceded Him. There's no one more loved by the Father. There's no one possessing greater riches. God couldn't give a lovelier gift than the gift of His divine Son. And some of you need to consider that for a moment before we move on to our next point. God cannot get any more generous towards you than He has already been in giving His Son. Some of your prayers are going unanswered and it's unsettling to you at times. Some of you have lost loved ones and it has brought great anger in certain seasons toward God. Some of you want this job to change, but nothing seems to be happening fast enough. And we could go on. All of these circumstances in our lives leave us wondering at times, do you really love me? If you do love me, why aren't you giving me this? Why are you taking this away? God cannot get any more generous towards you than He has already been in giving up His Son. You are so dear to God that He did not spare His only Son, but He gave Him up to see you saved. Whenever you're not satisfied with that kind of off-the-charts love, I would plead with you to consider seriously how insulting it is to say the gift of God's Son just isn't enough to prove God's love for me. He is the Father's eternal joy. 
He is heaven's treasure. What our dissatisfaction with God's love ultimately shows is that we're not seeing Christ for who He really is. And therefore, the depth of God's love for us is going to keep seeming insufficient. Because we're not actually looking at the sun. We're not actually seeing who it is that this Father gave up on our behalf. But God says here that He gave His best for you. Nothing more, because His Son is infinitely glorious, and nothing less, because His Son truly did come. He humbled Himself, taking the form of a servant. He entered the darkness of this world as the light. He identified with your flesh and blood. He lived your life, bore your sins, suffered your wrath, died your death, and rose victorious for your joy. Lift up your eyes to the sun in depression. When the cloud is settling upon you and see who He is. See what God's love is for you in Him. Lift your eyes to the Son of God in His infinite worth and see how loved you are that God gave Him this unique Son, this only Son for your eternal well-being. And not only did He give His divine Son in the sense of sending Him to earth, but He gave Him in the sense of killing Him on a cross in your place. So thirdly, we see the greatness of God's love revealed in the salvation His Son achieves for sinners. We see the greatness of God's love revealed in the salvation His Son achieves for sinners. When we look back just a couple of verses, we see Jesus comparing Himself to the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. And we looked at that last time in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. The main point is that just as God made provision for the people's deliverance from death through Moses lifting up the serpent on a pole, so also God has made provision for our deliverance from death by lifting up Jesus on the cross. Okay? In fact, the bronze serpent, the point Jesus' Jesus's point, is that the bronze serpent was even a picture that foreshadowed the much greater deliverance we gain through Jesus' death on the cross. So, for example... These are some of the comparisons that you can find. For example, the serpent could only rescue Israel from the temporary curse of serpents that were biting them, causing death. But it foreshadowed the day when Jesus would rescue the world from the eternal curse of God's wrath. The bronze serpent could spill no blood to remove the sting of death, ultimately. The people still died after they were healed. But it looked to the day when Jesus would spill his blood to remove death's sting completely for all who believe, that they might never die again. The serpent delivered Israel from the temporary plague of death when they looked upon it, but This foretold of the day when Jesus would deliver us from the eternal plague of death when we believe. All these connections Jesus wants us to make so that we understand what his lifting up 
achieves for sinners. In short, it achieves this deliverance from eternal death due to our sins. Deliverance from eternal death due to our moaning, our lustful thoughts, our lies to the boss at work, our poisonous tongues, our shaking of our fists at God. God gave His Son in this way so that if we believe on Him, salvation in full is ours. We will not perish, but we will have eternal life. His purpose for coming wasn't to bring condemnation to some and salvation for others. No. The whole, the whole world was already condemned. He didn't come to bring condemnation. The world was already condemned, guilty for their sins. Rather, the purpose for Jesus' coming was just like verse 17 says, that the world, which sat under condemnation already, that the world might be saved through him. God gave his son to die so that the poison of sin is removed and the curse of death is conquered for all who believe in him. That God loved you by sending his son to stand in your place under the weight of his omnipotent wrath you justly deserved should be a refuge for you in times of despair. There are days when all I can see before me, like John Newton's song says, when all all I can see before me is the hidden evils of my heart. And when the angry powers of darkness assault my soul in every part. Knowing that God loved me such that he sent his son as a wrath-absorbing sponge to satisfy God's anger against my sin to its very last drop so that there's none left is a refuge for me in those moments. It should be a shield for you when you take the Lord's Supper in a moment. And the accuser of the brethren stands over you, pointing out the depths of your wickedness. You don't deserve the supper. Remember what you did? You're dirty. You're unclean. God's ashamed of you. John 3.16 will absorb every one of his fiery darts. Because this text says... Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is how he loved you. These words should serve as an encouragement for you in seasons of depression when you ask, how could God ever love me? Divine love for you was not something that was like wrung out from God. Wrung out from God like a son begging his angry daddy to have mercy on his friends. The father freely, willingly, and extravagantly loved you. Such that he sent his son to die for you. He gave him up that you might be rescued and given eternal life. And if your depression goes long 
in this life? I say this with all sincerity. Because I haven't, I haven't experienced some of the longer seasons of depression like some of you have. If your depression goes long in this life, let me ask you, what will be these next 30 years of darkness in comparison to 10 trillion in the light of his presence? The light of his presence made accessible to you through the death of Christ, through his love. He gave him up for you that you might, if you're not feeling it in this life, you're going to feel it in the next, in full, in unhindered glory. You will sing of his love like never before. So hold on to his love now. It's holding on to you. Number four, we see the greatness of God's love in that he extends salvation to the entire world. We see the greatness of God's love in that he extends salvation to the entire world. By saying that, I do not mean that God saves every single individual in the world. Verses 19 to 20 show us that not everybody believes. The passage also makes it clear that God, not, that God only saves those who believe in Christ. The lake of fire will be populated with everyone who does not believe in Christ. So by saying that God extends salvation to the entire world, I do not mean that he saves every single individual. What I do mean is that God reveals his great love by extending salvation beyond his chosen people Israel to encompass countless multitudes from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Just reminded me, I was reading this, of some of the images that I've been reading of the, uh, of, and the promises of the, of the prophets. Like Isaiah 54, 2-3, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring shall possess the nations. That's good stuff. God's love is not just for his covenant people Israel. It extends to all the nations of the earth. They're all flooding into his covenant bride, into his covenant people. Get the tent pegs out, Jerusalem, to receive the nations. John is highlighting the same thing here that he did in chapter 1, verse 29. There, Jesus is the greater Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just take away Israel's sin anymore. He takes away the sin of the world. He's the better Passover lamb. And then here, the same sort of comparison is being made. Jesus is not lifted up like the bronze serpent was. He's not lifted up merely to deliver Israel from the curse of death. He's lifted up to deliver the world from the curse of death. Again, certainly not meaning the world without exception. People must believe in order to be saved, but it does mean the world without distinction. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. In other words, God's love is so great because it opens the door, a real door, for anyone who believes on the Son to be saved. Red, yellow, black, white, brown, young people, old people, rich, poor, self-righteous, moralists, unashamed, prostitutes, from bad sinners to the worst of sinners, anyone who trusts in the Son of God will not perish, but will gain eternal life. God's love indiscriminately offers salvation to all peoples through the Lord Jesus Christ. That means we preach, as the Apostle did in Acts 17.30, that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Or like Peter and to Cornelius... Gentile in Acts 10.43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Or like God did through his prophet Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. No sinner excluded from the offer of full salvation in Jesus Christ. None, Redeemer Church. We preach God's love in Christ indiscriminately to all people, offering not merely the possibility of salvation, but offering salvation in Christ itself. Pleading with sinners to acknowledge God's love for them in Christ so that they will not perish. Lastly, we see the greatness of God's love in that he enables people in this world that we've been talking about, this dark world that's under the condemnation of God, that refuses to believe in him, we see the greatness of God's love in that he enables people in the world to believe. Look again at the contrast he makes in verses 20 to 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Then notice what he doesn't say in verse 21. He does not say, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that his works should be exposed. He doesn't say that. As if to say... Now I have grounds for coming to Christ to put my thumbs in my suspenders and poke my chest out so that everybody sees my works. It's not what he says. Verse 21 says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's the picture John paints for us. In this world, there are two kinds of people. People who don't come to the light because they're morally unable, and people who do come to the light because of God. Period. Or let's put it another way. You're either running to hell because you want to, or God has snatched you up and given you new affections for His Son. So God's love doesn't merely hold out salvation in the gospel... 
that people might believe. God's love goes even further for that, than that for some, and it causes them to believe. It brings them to the light of Christ so that people, not, not so that people boast in their goodness, but so that it may be clearly seen that God did it. He brought you to the Son. He led you to believe. He provided everything necessary for you to gain eternal life. John raised the same point in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Just flip over there with me to chapter, chapter 12. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says there, uh, let's go to verse 11, start in verse 11. Jesus, he, the Son, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but, to all, do, but all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's not the end of the story, verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of God. I mean, nor the will of flesh. Was born in the will of God. Nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So many reject Christ. But some receive him and believe on his name. And that belief is a work of God. They're born of God. Or in chapter 6, verse 40 of John's Gospel. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. You must believe in order to be saved. That's the message we extend to all human beings. But Jesus goes on to add... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, if you believe, God drew you to Christ. We're beginning to see that the way God expresses his love is actually a very complex subject. I can even recommend a book to you. It's called by D.A. Carson. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's about 85 pages. Really quick read. A great Reads, little paperback. The difficult doctrine of the love of God. God expresses his love in very complex ways. He loves his son, quite apart from the world. We saw that earlier. He loves the world generally, and then he offers salvation to all indiscriminately. We noted that in point four, and now we see that God loves some within the world in that he enables them to meet the condition of belief and walk in the truth. The point is that salvation is never offered to a neutral world. God extends salvation through the gospel to an actively rebellious world running straight to hell. If any person in this world believe it's wholly owing to God overcoming their rebellion and resistance to the truth and then causing them to walk in it. So at the end of the day, God's love for the world precludes all kinds of human boasting and pride. If you're not a Christian today, please accept my apology on behalf of all those Christians who've pretended that that they're better than you are. The Bible does not promote that kind of attitude, and I'm sorry you've had to endure that kind of arrogance. Don't get me wrong. We seriously believe that you'll perish if you don't repent and follow Jesus Christ. But never are we saying by that some kind of spiritual one-upmanship. 
Actually, when we preach Christ truly, our words will say everything about His great worth and nothing of our own. We too deserve to perish. We too have the same sin problems. We too have gone astray, lived it up with the world, danced with the devil, drank this or that, yelled at our wives, looked at pornography, told our share of lies. We're not better than the world. We're, we were part of the world. We made our own empty contributions to its darkness. But our story is that of Scripture. God loved us, unworthy as we are, and sent His Son to rescue us. And He can do the same for you. How do I know, how do I know that? It says right here, God so loved the world. You included. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you believe in Him, He will save you. If you are a Christian today, let me plead with you not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Your salvation is owing to nothing of your own merit, nothing of your own loveliness. Your salvation is owing solely to God's love for you. His self-giving affection acted in Christ for your eternal Good. Moreover, he overcame your resistance to the truth that you might not hate the light, but run to it. Run to it. You want God's deeds to be exposed. You love it when God is exposed and put on display before others. Your life is no longer full of falsehood and wickedness. God, in his great love, has made you a doer of the truth. His love, supremely displayed in the cross compels us, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. It compels us because we are convinced that one man died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are indeed debtors. We owe others the gospel of Christ. In his book, Gospel and Mission, uh, Peter O'Brien says this, We who have experienced the saving power of the gospel in our own lives and have the assurance of deliverance from the wrath to come on the final day cannot be anything other than debtors to those for whom Christ died. If we know the desperate plight of men and women under divine judgment, we, are, we, ourselves, we ourselves had once been in that predicament, and that the gospel is the only hope for deliverance from the wrath to come, then we should be wholly involved in bringing it into the lives of others. We must no longer live, if we are in Christ, we must no longer live to promote ourselves. To promote ourselves, but to promote Christ in all that we do, for in Him the greatness of God the greatness of God's love has come to us.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for rescuing us from our desperate condition under your wrath. Thank you for loving us by sending your son into the world that we might be saved. Be a shield to us now in your love. Cover us with your love as we come to celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.